And this is the topic that, when, and what we're going to talk about tonight really is a very important matter, a life and death matter that has long-standing, uh, long, long-standing implications. We're going to talk about romance. I remember uh, a number of years ago, I was at a conference in Illinois, and uh, Jay Kessler, who at the time was the president of Youth for Christ, he stands up and he's praying, and he prayed differently than other people I heard pray. The way he prayed was was sort of um, it was sort of in, more informal than what I was used to. And he just said something that really caught me off guard. You know how that can be when people talk that way sometimes. He said, God, I just want to thank you for marriage. That was one of your best ideas. Do you agree with that? I do too. I, when I heard him say that, I, have, I was gone from Lois for three weeks and and Lois was pregnant with our firstborn, little Kyle, and, and I, I missed her. And when he said that, I thought, yeah, amen. That was one of your best ideas. Hey, we have a tendency sometimes to mess up God's good ideas, too. And it can cause pain and hurt. And we think we've all experienced maybe some of that, directly or indirectly. And yet, God's ideas are good ideas. And God one time was looking at man, and he said, it is not good for man to be alone. And he came up with the idea out of the heart and mind of our wonderful God. He came up with the idea of romance. I'm like, good job. I like that idea. Romance is a wonderful thing. And it, it, Hollywood didn't create it. They're making a lot of money on it, but they didn't come up with the idea originally. The idea was from God. Look in your Bible in Genesis 2 if you have one. Otherwise, just listen as I read Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And the Lord God said, uh, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept in. He took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place, and he took the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, and he made it into a woman. And he brought her to the man, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, a man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now that is... A wonderful little stretch of truth right there, isn't it? A wonderful little piece of truth that is given to us in the Bible. Here you have Adam, and he's given the task of naming all the animals, and he's like, you know, boy giraffe, girl giraffe, and, you know, boy horse and girl horse, and then he's like, after he's done, he's going, boy, where's my comparable person? And that's the context in which th- th- that's given here. So, so again, what am what I trying to tell you? I'm trying to tell you that romance was God's original idea. So if you want maximum romance, you want romance that's the very best, then you would want to do it God's way, the way God made it, the one who made it, right? Doesn't it just make good logical sense? It's true. And yet there, there is um, something else going on in our world, and, and, and you can tell this, and that is there are forces at work that are really kind of eating away at that idea. 
Therefore, you, have you noticed it? Have you noticed it in popular culture? Have you noticed that kind of tug away from God's ways, like even in your own life or in your own family? Have you seen that? It's just not that easy to have a family that kind of is patterned after God's ideal. Why is that? It's because there are dark forces at work that are tugging and pulling away at that. Now, you know, I may lose some of you on this, and so I'm going to tell you a kind of a story I made up right now. And if I lose you, just, you know, get, get, a, get a nap, and then come back later, and I'll pick up. And, but if there's some of you, this will happen to you. It might not. And then a little bit later on. But here's what I was thinking. As I was thinking creatively about this, I, I thought this. What, imagine that the world was not like the world is now, that there was no such thing as marriage in the world. It was like planet of the mates. Oh, just, you just mated. You didn't marry. Okay? Stay with me on this just for a minute, okay? Imagine that we live in a world where you didn't have a husband and wife, and you didn't have families, and you didn't bear children and raise them together. You just mated with whoever you wanted to mate with. And if there were children, what you did is you just take those children, and instead of trying to raise them yourself, because after all, not everybody's a good parent, right? You turn them over to the professional people that know how to take care of them, educate and train and feed, and, you know, people, nutritionists that can make sure... That <laughs> nutritionists that can make sure that they're well-fed and that they're healthy and doctors and stuff like that, and people that are better at teaching them than you are and so forth. And imagine that life was like that, and you wouldn't have to worry about, like, loyalty to one person. You could just kind of move around at will and mate with whoever you wanted to and have offspring and then kind of put the offspring and basically put them in institutions. And that might not be, that might be a better idea, some would say. Imagine the whole world is like that. It's just the way it is. You don't, you, don't, you don't think of having a home. You, you live with a man and a wife. You just, everybody lives independently. And you don't think of taking your own children that you have and raising them yourself. You wouldn't think of doing that. That's not the way the planet of the mates works. All right? Imagine this just for a minute. Now, imagine what happens is one day you maybe bump into a particular person who's kind of special to you. And you have kind of a tug or longing on your heart. You think, this person is, is, this person is special to me. And... About that time, you discover in an old garage or in an attic somewhere, you find this ancient book, this old book that describes life completely different than what you know in the planet of the mates. It's, this, it's, a, it's a teaching in the old book. As you read it, what it kind of says is you should pick one person and you should stay with that one person and you should have your own children and, and, you, should raise, and you can raise those children together. And you can take the primary responsibility for everything about those children. And you know, in your heart, when you read that old book, you think to yourself, that kind of, I like that. As you go out to this person you're interested in, you say, let's do this. Let's do what nobody else is doing. Let's you and I have a deal. Just the, maybe a promise we make each other that we're going to stick together through our entire life. And when we have offspring, we're not going to give them away to other people to take care of. We're going to take care of them ourselves in our own little house. Now, let's say that... People see you doing this, and they say, that looks like a good idea. There's something about that that looks kind of compelling. It's very touching. I like that idea. I think I would like you. They come over to your house one day. What are you doing? You know, you don't mate. You, like, have a family, and you raise your own children. You know, how, where did you get that idea? And then you say, well, if you're interested, you could come over, and we'll make coffee, and, and I'll show you this old book I found. And so they sit around the table, and you open this old book, and you read to them, and they like the idea. So they go, hmm, that... It just seem right, seems right to me, too. And so they begin to do that. Maybe a few others. And you have this little group that kind of gets together regularly. And they look at this old book. And they order their lives around the ideas of this old book. And they find an unusual kind of order in their life, an unusual kind of happiness in their life. 
and then over here in another town and another, and, and it spreads. And the whole planet begins to change from the planet of the mates to a planet of families that raise their own children. Friend, let me tell you something. You live in a culture that's the exact reverse of what I just said to you. We live in a planet that's been based on, in a country that's been based on, as a Christian ethic, families that raise their own children and take responsibility for their only children. And their ideal is that they mate for life with one person and have those children. And we're moving away from that in our culture that we're in. That's the culture you are trying to raise your kids in. That's the culture you're growing up in. That's true. We're moving toward the planet of the mates, if you will. Now, those of you that want to sleep can wake back up. I'm going to be a little less abstract here. What I want to do here is I want to show you what I believe from the Bible very clearly are some principles of romance from the Bible that keep us from going toward a planet of the mates and spiraling kind of out of control into that insecurity and the mess that that would be. What does the Bible say? What's God's way of doing this? And I want to show you these things from God's Word. And a long time ago, this came to my mind. And I heard someone talking about doing things in a different way. And my children were all really small. I thought to myself, you know, I ought to do something different. Because the way that I approached things wasn't all that helpful. I mean, there were some real serious gaps in that. And, and I see people kind of having the same problems. And as a pastor, you see these problems frequently. You see young people that are good Christian kids in many cases, good Christian kids who find it very, very difficult or they fail morally like before they're married, even though they're good Christian kids. Or maybe even people who would say, wow, well, how did I end up with this person? This wasn't really good. And they really seriously doubt the person. Maybe they didn't marry the right person, you know. And that happens a lot. You hear that a lot. And then you have all kinds of turmoil that's out of that or folks... Uh, have difficulties. And so as I look at that, I thought, there's, there's got to be a better way. So I began to think about that. As a young dad, you know, I would just think to myself, we'd do this, and Lois and I would talk, we'd do that. And I had all kinds of theories. You know how it is when your kids are real little, and, and, and you just say, this is what it's going to be. You, you know, and you, get, you tell them, you, when they're little, you, you dress them however you want to dress them, and you tell them exactly what they're going to eat, you know. It's macaroni and cheese, and five nights a week, that's the way it works. And Whatever. And, you know, you know, and then they get a little bit older and you find out they're like their mother. They have a mind of their own. And they're actually thinking individuals that are going to have some of their own ideas. And then it challenges things. And some of these things as people begin to ask me about them, they saw that our family was sort of rethinking this. They would say to me, Pastor, what do you think about that? And I would say something. And, and then, you know, as a pastor that's committed to getting all of his ideas out of this book and no ideas out of thin air, every once in a while I would get my... my my tail feathers clipped over some idea I had because somebody would come along with a Bible and they would say, is this making any sense to you? They would say, Pastor, is that idea in the Bible? And I would have to admit, no, it's just a hunch of mine. So all the, all the ideas that were just a hunch of mine, you leave them on the cutting room floor. You just kind of forget about those things. And over the years, as we've talked about this, the ideas that survive are the ideas that come out of this book. And I want to show you tonight three principles of maximum romance. And they're like, they have, I have this little annoying... Um, alliteration, M-A-P, okay? Three principles of maximum romance, M-A-P. I want to show you what, what they, where they are in the Bible tonight. And, I, and the, the goal would be that young people in our church would have the, the best experience in romance that they could possibly have. That they would be as happy as it's humanly possibly possible to be. That the kids, that the young people, the young men and women in our church that are listening to me now are the ones that could be influenced by us that they would see a different way of looking at things, and that they would have a, the, best, the best experience possible. Romance, God's way. 
Wouldn't that be great? So the first one is this. And these are three. And I'll tell you all three of them, and then we'll go back and give you details. Number one, when you're single, concentrate on ministry. When you're single, concentrate on ministry. That's one. Number two, when you're single, keep under authority. Explain that a little bit. Don't get all scared about that. I'll explain it. Keep under authority. That's the A. Get it? Ministry, authority. And a third letter is purity. Never sacrifice your purity. Where does it say this in the Bible, and how is this supposed to work? Concentrate on ministry, keep under authority, never sacrifice your purity. Let me show you why these are really critical things. And they're a lot, they're a lot, they, they haul a lot more water. They carry a lot more weight than you think. These three things, I can demonstrate that the Bible commands these things. And when I demonstrate that the Bible demonstrates these things and commands these things, and you embrace these things as a follower of Jesus Christ, I will believe there will be really good fruit in your life as a result of this. And you might influence people around you or your grandkids or nieces and nephews or your own children. Or you might just decide you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking, you know, I want this for myself. I make up my mind. This is what I want to do. This is how I want to live. So, first of all, take your Bibles and look in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 32, and we have a clear New Testament didactic teaching, like a direct propositional truth laid down in the Bible. Not, a, not an example, you understand. It's not narrative here. This is a teaching portion of the Bible. When I say didactic, I'm talking about a teaching portion of the Bible. Understand this. When we see, I like the narrative portions of the Bible. You know that I'm a storyteller, so I love the stories of the Bible, right? There's tons of stories of the Bible. But what you want to do is you always want to interpret the stories of the Bible based on the teaching parts of the Bible. So when we get down and dirty on something and we really want to say, what does the Bible teach about this? We don't want to take that from the stories of the Bible. We want to take it from the teaching of the Bible. Then we understand the stories of the Bible based on the teaching of the Bible. Does that make sense? The, the, the teaching, the didactic portions like what we're going to look at tonight that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are going to explain the stories that we see elsewhere. And I am going to illustrate from the Bible, from stories in the Bible things, but our doctrine is based on the teaching of the Bible and then the stories amplify the teaching of the Bible. That's a really important thing. It's true across the board. It's true tonight when we look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is a passage, a part of Paul's letter where he's talking to single people. And what he's saying to single people is very interesting. What should a person do when they're single? Does the Bible say what a single person is supposed to do with their single years or their single life? There's something interesting here in the Bible about that. Notice what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and, and verse, uh, verse 32. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 32. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. So a single person has this direct calling, please the Lord with your life, right? But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Go ahead, man. You can say amen to that. Is it true? Sure, you can pretend it's not true, but you know it's true. You want to please your wife. And what's cool is that's what Jesus says. He knows that. So ladies, I would like highlight this part if I were you. I want to take out the highlighter and mark that and say, Honey, you know what God says you're supposed to do. You're supposed to please me, and you are not. So you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to break out. You're going to have to get better with the vacuum and, and so forth. Otherwise, that's what my wife would say, I'm sure. Anyway, that he may please his wife. Now, now um, this verse 34 says, There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and in spirit, but she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. 
Now this I say for your own profit, that I, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. And all kidding aside, I would mark that passage right there, that you could serve the Lord without distraction, because I think in this passage, that phrase right there kind of gives the central truth of this part of the passage. It's saying this, a single, it's giving a single person an idea about what God says should occupy their mind and their life and their thinking while they're single. And it is this. A single person should concentrate on serving the Lord without distraction, attending upon the Lord without distraction. This uh, Jesus Christ should preoccupy the heart, the mind, the life, the affections, and the energies of single people. That's the way God made it to be. And then God is glorified in a married person's life while they serve the Lord, obviously, but they do that through their marriage obligations. But a single person has this kind of direct focus that a single person should be attending upon the Lord, serving the Lord without distraction. I, you can call that ministry, and for the sake of my alliteration, that's what I said, M, ministry. But I would say it, maybe even a better way to say it than, than ministry is ministry that grows out of intimacy with Jesus Christ. So here's the deal. When you're a single person, what should you do with your time and your life and your energy? You should be concentrating on what the Bible says right here. And that is you get it up to speed really fast. You reach high, that you reach high in terms of your aspirations for knowing and serving Jesus Christ and having intimacy with Jesus Christ. And, and, and I'm going to get ahead of myself a little bit, but I'll tell you, this, this is one of the reasons why that works, is that often single people attract other single people, and when that happens, you want to attract another single person that's attracted to a person who's going hard after God, you see. It's just really important that you don't wait around and say, well, you know, after I'm married and life isn't any fun anymore, then I guess I'll start doing a bunch of church and a bunch of, you know, boring things, serving the Lord and stuff like that. You think like that, you're going to be messed up. The way you want to think is, while I'm single, I'm going to go hard after God and really serve the Lord. And what that will do is that will make you spiritually attractive to a person who has the sense to be attracted to a person who's spiritually attractive. But the other kind of attraction, that could get you in some serious trouble. You see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? So that's why I think Psalm 73 and verse 25 says, Who have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on earth that I desire besides thee. Nobody on earth that I desire besides you. That really ought to be true about us. Can you say that? Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, it says to be content, whatever state we're in, Jesus himself said to soldiers and to single people and to others, he said, he said to be content in the state you're in. Realize that God is at work in the state that you're in, and if it's a single state right now, there should be a sense of contentment in him. And sometimes God will withhold, especially from consecrated people, a mate or a job or something. He'll withhold that from them because they're consecrated, because he says, here's what we've got to do. We've got to get their heart centered on me very clearly centered on me. And then, after that, what I want to do is I want them to go into marriage way ahead of the game with their hearts centered on Christ first. That's a really important thing. And that's what the Scriptures teach. Here's how I heard it when I was a boy. I'm 17 years old. I got this blue VW Super Beetle. Loved that car, except it didn't have a heater. Um, and I loved the things of the Lord. I was not a perfect kid. I had a lot of messed up stuff. But the one thing I know was in my life, in there somewhere, I had this hunger, this interest, this desire about the things of the Lord. And I messed up a lot struggled to have my devotional times all the time and I felt guilty about that and there were just, you know, struggle with moral purity my thought life frequently, just a lot of stuff that I was working on, but there was this thing 
in my mind that I thought, you know, I heard there was going to be a revival service. And there was this preacher that was going to be at First Baptist Church in Arcanum near Greenville where I was in high school. And nobody else in the family was really interested in going that night. And I said to my folks, is it okay if, you, if I go to the revival service? I went to this revival service and I sat in kind of the back of the church and it wasn't really full. And the guy who was speaking, I wish I knew his name because he said so many helpful and profound things. I had my blue leather Thompson chain reference Bible with me. I still have this in my study. The guy said so many helpful things. And and over the years that I get to be your pastor, I trust to repeat a couple of those things. But I want to tell you one tonight. Here's what he said. And I remember taking out my pen. I remember writing it down. And it had the ring of truth to it. I thought, that has got to be true. Here's what he said. He said this. Young people, if you concentrate on being who God wants you to be, He will bring you who He wants you to have. And I thought, you know, I didn't know why that was true, but I I did have the ring of truth to it. So this is what we're saying. When you're single, the tendency is to say, I'm looking, I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hunting, I'm looking around. And, the, and that's not entirely inappropriate. I understand that a little bit. But the main focus of your life, the main focus of your affections and your heart should be on Christ. And when that's true, what, that ha- what happens then is then as you have these Godward affections, that obviously that's the appropriate way to orient your life, and that makes you attractive to a person who you are want to be attractive to, obviously, in case marriage is God's plan for you. God, understand this, God knows you. God knows the other person if you're going to marry. God knows the future. God loves you. He longs for your blessing more than you do. You might want to connect with Him, right? Think about that. Do you know the future? No. You don't even know yourself. You don't even know yourself. None of us do. But God knows us. And that other person, do you know them? I mean, just because you played putt-putt golf with them, do you honestly think you know them? The first time that Lois and I went out together, we played putt-putt golf, and she shellacked me. Three holes in one and no remorse. She went bragging to her roommates about that. They're like, you're not supposed to do that. He ain't going to like you. She says, well, too bad, you know. Like, wow. She didn't know me then. I didn't know her. You can't get to know somebody that quickly, right? But God knows them. God knows you. God knows the secrets of your heart. Do you know the future? You don't know the future. He knows the future. Do you believe in a God who knows the future? Do you believe God knows the future? Absolutely. God is sovereign. He knows everything. He controls everything. There is nothing God does not control. If that is not true, He is not God. God is absolutely sovereign over everything. Do you believe that? If that's true, think about this, then wouldn't you want to trust Him with your future since He knows the future and you don't have a clue about the future and you're not really sure about yesterday? Right? Think about that. So, I mean, this makes sense. So you focus on Him and that cleans up everything. Seeking first the kingdom of God, His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You seek God first. This is true, not just with single people, but with all of us. This is interesting because this is what the whole Bible teaches This doesn't mean that you don't notice other people. If you're single and you're a single girl, you don't notice an interesting guy. That doesn't mean that. That's that's kind of not reasonable. That's weird. People that act like that, I don't trust them. You know, I mean, let's let's be honest. God, maybe the idea of romance, you got a hunch, you know, that guy's handsome. You're going to notice this. 
You know, I'm really repressing a whole lot of great illustrations because I live with, you know, four lovely daughters and four sons, and I could be telling you stuff that would really be interesting tonight. Things that I have over here, you know, while people are using the curling irons and straightening appliances and all of that stuff, the things I over here, I'm thinking of something right now. If I, I, I could tell you, but then my daughters would probably not speak to me for a long time after that. But I'm just telling you this, that I believe that we, you know, we try in our home too, and, and I'm sure it's true in your home too, not to ignore the big elephant in the middle of the room. If you're a young fella and there's an attractive young girl on the radar, you probably pick up on that. I mean, that's kind of natural. If you're a young, young woman and a sharp guy steps into the scene, you got, you know, we don't, we, God wouldn't expect you not to notice that for pity's sake. But what you do, what you do with that is, is really important. The, the, book, the Song of Solomon is a book on romance in the Bible. It's pretty interesting reading, actually. And if you read it, let me tell you what I believe are three major themes in the Song of Solomon. And they bear out what I'm saying here. Three things. What's that book there for? You know, some pastors, because they seem a little embarrassed by it, they go, well, the Song of Solomon must be an allegory, you know. And so they kind of explain away the romance part, and they make it an allegory. I don't buy. I don't buy that. Even though I'm, I'm on thin ice because some of my heroes really do believe that. But anyway, nonetheless, I think that, that the Song of Solomon is about marriage and romance and sexual part of romance. And, and that the Bible is saying in the Song of Solomon, this is God's idea. Don't give it away to the world. It's, it's God's idea, and it's a good thing. I think you can just see that real clearly, even if it is an allegory. You read the Song of Solomon, it's like, obviously, sexuality, human romance, is a great thing. It's a God's idea. Don't let the world take that away. That's one. Two is this. It's very, very, very powerful. I mean, who wouldn't agree with that from human experience? Marital love or sexual desire or romance is a very powerful thing. That's what it says in the Song of Solomon. Many waters cannot quench love. And in the wisdom literature of the Bible says it in a lot of different colorful and poetic ways. Love is one powerful thing. And that's why the third thing is true. We are not to awaken love before its time. And that's repeated in the Song of Solomon over and over again. Don't awaken it before its time. And this is what we're saying right here. I believe that the Bible is teaching is that single people should attend upon the Lord without distraction. They should concentrate on their intimacy with Jesus Christ. They should see to it that they get that thing up and running, that they're really following the Lord. And they're following God with a, with a heart of desire and passion for the Lord. That they should concentrate on that. And that should be the focus of their young life. That's the appropriate focus of a young heart. And when they do that, not to awaken romantic desire before it's time because there's danger when that's out of place. And that's why the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, when it talks about sexual desire, it talks about two different things really clear in the Bible. In the book of the Proverbs, you see this real clearly in Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6, and Proverbs 7. In Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, you've got these pictures of sexual desire or romantic desire. And and what it says in the Bible is like this. Sexual expressions inside of marriage are like a warming fire. It's a wonderful thing. But sexual expressions outside of marriage are like a damaging, raging fire. And those are the images that are given. In the Bible, inside of marriage, the Bible says that within marriage, that sexual expressions are like a life-giving fountain, a beautiful life-giving thing that makes life flourish and causes life to happen. But in the book of Proverbs, outside of marriage, sexual expressions outside of marriage, according to the Bible, are like a sewer running in the street. And that's the way it is. In the book of Proverbs, the, the sexuality is given as a picture of the highest human expression, the highest expression of human affection. But in the book of Proverbs, outside of marriage, any sexual expression is acting like an animal, like a base animal. That is what the Bible says. 
So it is extremely important that we would not stir up any of that sexual desire that's expressed outside of marriage because outside of marriage, it is a very, very dangerous thing. That's why we've got to be really serious about this. Sexual expressions are all within marriage. That's the way God intended for them to be. Outside of marriage, extremely dangerous, extremely damaging. If you look in Christian history, it's interesting, in Christian biography, and you read really good Christian biographies, and I recommend that you do this, you will see that people that God powerfully used, people that, were, that had lives of great impact for the Lord, were people that were willing to sublimate, were, they're willing to step back and not jump into um, romance, but they were willing to prepare, and they were willing to wait, and they put Christ first, and service to Christ first, and ministry to Christ first. And some of them delayed marriage for a long time. I'm not suggesting that everybody does that. Everybody shouldn't do that. But I am just saying that there are many examples of that. And if you want to read something really wonderfully written about this, a person who really lived this, I would recommend that you read Elizabeth Elliot's book, Passion and Purity. For an old lady, she writes very clearly and very frankly about these subjects. You shouldn't have called her an old lady. She's a fine, godly Woman, it's a wonderful book to read. In Quest for Love, it follows that. And you want to read books that are absolutely filled with genuine adventure and genuine romance. Read the books of Elizabeth Elliot through Gates of Splendor and the other books about her husband, Jim Elliot, and the other men, the heroic men that, that served with him and laid down their lives. This is a powerful story. And in her book, Passion and Purity, she specifically talks about her own experience with Jim Elliot. She fell in love with him. He fell in love with her. But they didn't just jump and get married right away. As a matter of fact, they took a great deal of time as they were going. I wasn't really certain that they would get together. If you read the book really carefully and you read the story, it's really a drawn-out matter while each of them specifically sought the Lord very carefully. And they didn't assume they were always to be together. And there were long periods of separation. And Jim Elliot, he tells her, he writes her a letter and he says, I love you and you're really distracting to me. And so I'm going to have to cut things off for now and just go to the mission field. And so he goes to the mission field. And later on, he feels love the Lord to let her know, you know, she's praying about this, and she's not angry with him or upset, and she, she's just seeking the Lord. And later he writes, and he says, well, I'm here on the mission field, and I'm not going to come home because I'm serving the Lord, and if you want to serve the Lord, then we'll get married as long as you learn the language first, and then come to meet me, and we'll get married here on the field. A lot of girls would have said, if you can't come home, and you're going to get me hoops to jump through, and languages to learn, well, you know, look for somebody else. But she didn't. She didn't. Unusual. And God consecrated. He sanctified that relationship. And many of us have drawn powerful analogies and examples from that relationship. There are others like Robert and Mary Moffat. And Robert asked for Mary, permission to marry Mary Moffat. And Dad said no. And he says, well, he says, because you're going to the mission field. And she's like, and back then, especially in Pioneer Missions, it's like, you go to the mission field with my daughter, she's going to die. No, you don't have my permission. And he said, well, I love her. I would lay down my life for her. I want her to come with me. But if that's what you're saying, I'm not going to violate that. And he went to the mission field. And he kept writing, probably frequently. And three years later, Dad said, we'll let her go. And they served 50 years together. God consecrates. When somebody decides to live that way, God's blessing is on it. There's a consecration. When Jim and Elizabeth Elliot came to that, they were out in uh, the, the Pacific Northwest 
And they decided what they would do is they were going to meet one night and they were going to, they were going to meet in a cemetery and they were going to sit down on a bench in the cemetery and they were going to pray and they were going to dedicate their love to God and consecrate their love to God and just say, God, whatever you want, you do it. If it means we're together or we're not together, one thing we are going to do, we're going to serve you with our lives. And they did that. And when they did that and they stopped, they, they, they prayed together as they sit there on that bench in the nighttime, the moon rose over their shoulder. And when they looked up, the moon was casting a shadow of a cross that was on one of the gravestones right between their heads on the ground. I will just tell you that heaven and earth, God will move heaven and earth to bless you if you decide that you are going to have that kind of a consecrated relationship for Him. That's what God says He will do. But your concentration is a single person. So this is the question that often good single young people ask, what do I do now? I sense that marriage is there in the future for me, but what do I do now? And, and, and the, the, specific, the specific spiritual answer is go hard after God. Serve the Lord out of an intimacy with the Lord. And I would suggest, too, that get good at serving the Lord. Look for opportunities to serve the Lord. Look for qualities that you can uh, gain in serving the Lord. Look for um, uh, skills that you can acquire in serving the Lord, but just go after serving the Lord and, and, you, and you trust Him. It doesn't mean there doesn't come a time in your life where you do something a little more overt, but we'll talk about that later on. Number two, keep under authority. Now, why do I say this? It sounds kind of high-handed, like, oh, you know what, keep under authority. Well, it's because it's the way God works. God works through authority, and all authority comes from the Lord. The Bible says that in Romans chapter 13, there isn't any authority, but that, the authority that comes from the Lord. And if I could tell you something simple, young people, just simple, if you want to have the blessing of God on your life, and I could only give you one advice beyond getting saved, it would be this. Be a person, be a young person that believes that God will work through the authorities of your life, even if they have hurt you, even if they are weird, even if they are flawed. Because all authorities are weird and flawed, and all authorities hurt people from time to time. And, and young people always think, well, it's not going to work for me because my dad's weird. It's not going to work for me because my mom's angry. It's not going to work for me because they're, they're kind of over the top on their rules and stuff. It's not going to work for me because my parents aren't Christians. It's not going to work for me because look at the mess they've made up their life. Why would I listen to them? So you go off and you watch a movie from Hollywood and you base your life on that. As if that makes sense. Think. Think. God, you've got to believe that since God said He works through authorities, that doesn't mean that you blindly do everything the authority says the moment that they tell you. There are checks and balances in this, in the Bible, but it does mean that you take authorities in your life very seriously. And when it comes to marrying somebody, it's like, okay, I'm single, I'm serving the Lord without distraction. How do I know when it's time? Talk to mom and dad. Mom and dad don't want you around forever. <laughs> I mean, I want my kids around forever. But you, you, your parents don't want you around forever. They, you know, seriously, they love you. They want you to be around. But they want to launch you in life. They want you to have babies and make them grandparents and start a franchise of your family somewhere else. You know, they want that extra room in the house. They really don't want to torture you by keeping you around all the time. They just want you to be really careful. And they want to see to it that you marry right and in the faith and that you really have a chance at genuine happiness based on what God says. They don't want you in a planet of the mates. You see what I'm saying? And so this is what the Scriptures say. Where do I get this? I'm going to just show you in the Bible. This is very, very important. It's in 1 Corinthians 7, 36-38. Now we're picking up from 35, where we just read. 1 Corinthians 37, 36. Listen to this. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she's past... Now, understand this. I believe what the Scriptures are saying here is you could insert the word daughter here. And I'll explain this in a minute. But for now, just as I read this, just think virgin daughter, okay? 
and I'll explain this in a minute, but verse 36. But if any man thinks he's behaving improperly toward his virgin, his daughter, if she's past the flower of her youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will. In other words, he's in authority here. Has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, his daughter, he does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well. He who gives her in marriage does well. He who gives her in marriage does well. He who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is... And now, understand. So... When you have a wedding, it's almost always this way, right? The, the father walks the bride, his daughter down. This kind of usually works this way, traditionally, right? The father walks his daughter down the aisle. Then the pastor says, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Let me coach you. The right answer is, I do. Everybody says, her mother and I. And I am going to get pelted with rotten tomatoes for saying this. But covenantally, it is the father who's saying this. He's assuming that he's speaking for his wife. If he wants to say her mother and I, that's cool. I know you're mad at me for saying it because all you said that, you know. Her mother and I? Yeah, that's true. But it really is covenantally before God. He's saying, I, you gave this girl, little girl to me. I have loved her. I have protected her. I have taught her. I've taught her about the Lord Jesus. I've watched over her moral purity. I've kept her from danger and harm. I've protected her. She's on my arm and she's been on my arm this entire lifetime. And now... I'm turning her over to a man who I trust to be a godly man who also will protect her. And and there's no time when that girl is left unprotected ever. That's not the way it's supposed to work. And that man has appealed to him and gotten permission. And he's saying yes, and that's what that's supposed to mean. And that's why he looks that guy in the eye and he says, I do. And then he puts his daughter's arm on that man's arm. And that man takes over where he left off. And no woman is unprotected and uncherished and unloved in that scenario of marriage that I'm talking about. All right? There's a special place for single ladies. That's a different topic that we're talking about. You may ask, is this really what the Bible is saying? Is this what the Scriptures are saying? Are the Scriptures saying that a man is supposed to give his daughter in marriage? Because we say that in our ceremony, but a lot of us don't really think that the daughter kind of goes and she does her hunting or looking around or listening to her offers and she weighs her offers and she takes an offer from a guy and then she comes home and there's this kind of, inf- there's kind of a formality. It's like, hey, Dad, you know, pretty much we decided this and it's okay with you, right? It's cool with you. And the dad's like, what do you think, honey? Um, yeah, I'm kind of making fun of things, making light. Maybe it's not always exactly like that, but it's kind of like that. Dad kind of gets on it at the end. He's not really involved in that in any real serious way. Like the Bible does talk about a father giving his daughter in marriage. He has authority to do that. And that is important. This is the biblical matter. This is why I understand this passage this way. It's interesting. I don't think much of the NIV. Just a little personal opinion, okay? I don't think much of it. And it's better than a lot of translations. It's better than a lot of translations. And it's readable. But it's interpretive. The NIV tends to interpret things and say this is what it means rather than just this is what it says. That's a broad oversimplification. But but that's what happens in this passage. In the NIV, here's what this passage says. And I'm I'm just telling you ahead of time. I think what the NIV does, this is really important, otherwise I wouldn't burn your time (laughs) telling you this, but the NIV says this in the way that our culture understands it because we, we tend to come, in our culture, we tend to come at marriage through an idea that everybody's out there dating around, making their individual decision, and then getting dad's blessing maybe later on. And, that, and this reads like that. It reads like we're reading our culture into it. And it says, if anyone thinks he's acting improperly toward the virgin he's engaged to, 
And those words are not in the original at all. Nothing about engagement there, okay? Or that he's engaged to. Um, if he's getting along in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do what he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right. He who does not marry does even better. And what this is saying, if that interpretation is right, what it's saying is it's just up to the young people who they want to marry. It's their decision. But you have no other examples in the Bible of that that's not commended or demonstrated anywhere else in the Bible. In the NIV, in the marginal note, there's this reading here. It's interesting because I think in the margin they got it right, my opinion, because it, it matches the rest of the Bible. And this is what the margin says here. If anyone thinks he's not treating his daughter properly, if she's getting along in years and he feels she ought to marry, he should do what he wants. He's not sinning. She should let, he should let her get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind is under no compulsion but has control over his own will and has made up his own mind to keep the virgin unmarried. His, this man also does the right thing. So then he who gives his virgin daughter in marriage does the right thing. He who does not give her in marriage does better. In other words, the dad's supposed to check off on this before he gives his daughter away in marriage. That's the way God made it to work. Now you see this in the Bible a lot. All throughout the Bible that you see this. And I want to give you some quick examples. According to the Bible, the father is supposed to give his daughter in marriage. This is as simple as the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother, right? Do what they, oh, and, and Ephesians clarifies that, obey your mother and father. And it kind of goes up to, this, to the marriage altar, and then, they, and then they leave the father and mother, and they become one flesh, and they have their own autonomous household at that time. There's not a window of time in between where she's doing what she wants to do and not listening to her dad's direction. It's like she's listening to her dad's loving direction. His loving direction is growing. He's not like get, telling her, you know, what color to turn her hair and stuff like that. And then he turns her over to the husband, who also shouldn't treat her like that. Am I making any sense? He's like, not a lot, and it will help me. Okay. So, so in other words, what the Scriptures are teaching, that the father is supposed to give his daughter in marriage, that he's supposed to watch over and protect her. And that's what the fifth commandment teaches. That's part of what the fifth commandment teaches. You want, if you say, well, I'm honoring my father, but I'm marrying somebody without his disagreement. How can you honor your father and marry somebody without him agreeing? How can you honor your father and marry without their blessing? How can you do that? How can you obey the fifth commandment and marry without your parents' blessing? This is a Bible matter. This is a Bible matter. This is an opinion. This is what the Scriptures teach. And now, this is examples of the Bible. Like, for instance, according to the Bible, a father can cancel his daughter's vow. In the Old Testament law, in the day that he hears of a vow, the father can cancel his daughter's vow. Now, if that, if, so why would that be? Because God says that the, the vows are the responsibility of the father. He's watching over her or his wife. God holds fathers responsible if they allow their daughters to marry wrong. This is interesting. In Ezra... Um, take your Bibles let's look at that real quick here tonight and thanks for your patience here but this is it takes a little while to develop this truth in, a, in, a, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah there was a problem and, and they were allowing their sons and daughters to take husbands and wives that were not godly husbands and wives and it wasn't right and God was holding them accountable and so he was stirring up the prophets to, to hold their feet to the fire and say that was wrong that you did that does this make sense the, the, the prophets were upset rightfully upset seriously upset because the fathers were allowing their daughters to marry unbelievers okay 
is like God was holding them responsible. God doesn't then tell the prophets to go after the girls and say, why did you do that? He says, go after the dads and say, why did you let them do that? That's what it says. Okay, if, if, if Ezra chapter 9, and, and this is kind of interesting. It's very colorful. Ezra chapter 9 um, and, and verse 2. These things are done. The leaders came to me. Verse 2 uh, says, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of these lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and the rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, listen to what he does. Is Ezra says, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of my hair of my head and my beard, and I sat down astonished. You think we get worked up when we, te- we teach around here. <laughs> this guy says, tore his clothes, ripped out his beard. He's like, this is serious. So the, the prophet's sitting in the gate, and he's, he's got ashes on his head, and he's, he's torn his clothes, and he's ripped out his beard, his face is bloody, and people are going, so what's up with him? <laughs> and they're going, well, he's really upset, because God told him to tell us we shouldn't, be let our, we shouldn't let our daughters marry these unbelievers. Isn't interesting? All right? Now, this, is, this doesn't solve the problem. You'd think that kind of preaching would have an effect on the people, but it doesn't solve the problem. And Nehemiah is still dealing with the problem. And you see this in... By the way, back in Nehemiah, or Ezra chapter 9, and I think I read verse 2, verse 3. Look at verse 5. In the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, having torn my garment, my robe, and I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord God. Serious business, all right? Nehemiah has the same problem. He's still preaching to the same crowd, trying to help them. And, and God tells him to tell them the same thing. This is now in Nehemiah chapter 13. And let's see what Nehemiah does. Remember that Ezra tore his clothes and pulled out his beard and spread himself out before the Lord in prayer and put ashes, put on ashes of sackcloth. In Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 25, Nehemiah 13 and, and verse 25, he sees this. And this is, look at verse 23. In those days I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. They had violated God's law in doing that. Verse 24. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them, and I cursed them, and I struck some of them, and I pulled out their hair, and I made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their, to their sons, or take their daughters as your, son, or, or your sons for yourselves. You see what Nehemiah does? Ezra says he pulls out his beard, and Nehemiah <laughs> pulls out their beard. I like Nehemiah's style a lot better myself. It's interesting. He cursed them and he kicked them and he pulled out their beard. He's serious about this. Nehemiah does some other cool stuff. You want to read the Bible someday. It's really interesting. There's some other things Nehemiah does in here that are just like textbook. But the point I'm trying to make is, would you say this is a, a, a moot point or a... Would you say with Ezra and with Nehemiah and with God in his book that this was an issue that was like either or? Would you say this is a, like a pretty serious issue? I would say it's obviously a pretty serious issue. And so what I'm, what I'm just saying very clearly is this. According to the Bible, a father is supposed to give his daughter in marriage. According to the Bible, a father can cancel his daughter's vows, wife's vow, on the day he hears it, according to the, in the Old Testament law. According to the Bible, God's hold fathers responsible if they allow their daughters to marry wrong. Now, just think about this logically. This is a big decision, and it's too big to make alone. It's a huge decision. This is one of the biggest decisions in life. Now, you're a young lady here. You know, you think about this just for a minute. You want to get help on this decision? You really want to make it all by yourself? I know you want to have, and significantly in the Bible, often the young ladies, they had a say in these things, you understand? I believe that you do, obviously. The most important say, perhaps. We, we were over, uh, as a family, went to Lake Michigan one day. 
And it was a number of years ago now, it was a stifling hot day, and, and we decided as a family that we would go uh, over to Lake Michigan where we spend the day at the beach and cool off. And so we all went over there together, and it was just a beautiful day, and it was hot. We got out of the car, and we walked toward the beach, and it was this big, high bluff. We got to the top of the bluff where the trees parted, and there was a breeze blowing off the lake, just a steady, cool, like air conditioning breeze blowing off the lake. And we, and we all went down, and we spent the day at the lake until the sun set that night. And, and it was probably the day that I noticed my daughters were starting to turn from little girls to women. Sobering, wonderful thing for a dad to see. And while we're, the girls were swimming and kids were playing and we're eating and the sun eventually went down the sky and began to set. And I look up and Mother's daughter Holly was standing out at the edge of the water. She was looking out toward the sunset and I went up and I put my arm around her and said, I love you. Love you too, Dad. I said, wouldn't this be a romantic place to come with your husband someday? And she said, yeah, it really would. I said to her, I hope that he and I are best of friends. And she said to me, you will be, Dad. I mean, you're going to pick him, right? Now, you know she got in my will that day, right? That's... And I wrote that down on a piece of paper and published it. And I've repeated it many, many times. <laughs> so you might not want to say something like that to your dad because he's going to take that to the bank, right? And that might not be exactly true, but what I'm saying is, you know what was happening that night? As we watched the sunset, I thought, this little girl that came into my life, little, she was tan when she was born, adorable little thing, just the sweetest, quietest little girl. The next day I brought a flower for mom, bought a flower to take to mom to take her home from the hospital. I thought, wait a minute, I've got two girls in my life now. So I said, can you make me a little tiny rose, a little tiny rose with a safety pin that I can put on Holly's sleeper? I mean, I have two girls now. And the day we brought her home from the hospital, I got to put this little tiny rose. I thought, oh, and what a wonderful, what a wonderful experience to be a dad. I want to love her. I want to take care of her. I want her to be happy. I want to help her make big decisions. I don't know that much about cars, but Holly wouldn't go buy a car and not ask me my opinion about it. I'll get somebody who I know that knows something about cars and have them tell me and then pretend I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Holly might go buy a car that was a pretty shade of peach with no engine in it. Because she's a girl. And some girls are like that. And some girls are better at fixing cars than I am. Or she might just see some guy with a hairy chest someday and say, that's the guy. And I might go, time out. <laughs> he doesn't have a brain. Well, Holly wouldn't do this, but he doesn't have a Bible. What, what on earth? What are you thinking? It's my right to go, time out, wait. I mean, I say that. It's like a joke, but I've actually heard women say that. He had a hairy chest. Like, whatever. I guess I'm kind of sensitive about this, but I'm not telling you why. But anyway, <laughs> sorry about that. What we like to say in our family is this, and I hope it's helpful, and that is, Here's the idea. Stay under authority. Don't initiate any romance without the enthusiastic blessing of your parents because you're going to get the cart ahead of the horse. Does that make sense? I make a note of that. If you ever take notes, write that one down. Don't initiate any romance without the enthusiastic blessing of your parents because if you're going to get your parents' blessing, you don't want to get the cart ahead of the horse and later on ask them to endorse what you already did. Don't do that. And that causes trouble. Trust me. I know what I'm talking about. Wait and say, are we okay with this mom? Are we okay with this dad? Can I initiate this? And wait till they say, yeah, that's good. That's good. That's a, what I just told you is really helpful. Don't initiate, especially a secret. Never have a secret romance. 
and they don't initiate any romantic involvement until you have your parents' blessing. And then eventually, like when you marry, we always like to say six green lights before you go. Six green lights before you go will help you make a good decision, right? In other words, your light is green, her light is green, her mom and dad's lights are green, your mom and dad's lights are green. I mean, it's, just, it's, a, it's a healthy idea, right? It, ultimately, ideally, and it's not always ideal, but ideally, six green lights before you go is probably, it's probably good to think that way, to think it's likely that God's light is green if your light is green and her light is green and her mom and dad's lights are green and your mom and dad's light. And that's what a wedding is supposed to look like. Look, your people here, her people there, covenant before God, her dad gives her away to you. He looks you in the eye and says, I'm going to kill you if you mess with I mean, he says, I trust you. You're a great guy and I believe in you and, and I know you're going to take care of you with, with her. I know you're a man of integrity. I'm taking care of her and you're going to take care of her like I have and I'm happy about this. Go have babies. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a third thing, and I like talking about this. That's why I'm going on forever and ever. But let me give you the third thing. Concentrate on ministry, number one, and maturity until the time comes that your parents say, yeah, you're ready to marry. Now it's time to start looking, start paying attention to that kind of a thing. Maybe even taking steps. Your parents may even endorse steps to take at that point. You know how I got this job? Anybody want to guess? The Internet. Got this job because of the Internet. I knew about the church, but I noticed on the Internet that you needed a pastor. And I sent an email. Do you think God led me here? The answer here is yes. The right answer is yes. So let's just say that, okay? Yeah, okay, yes. We trust that's true. <laughs> we trust that's true. But he used the Internet. Now, <laughs> I know what you're thinking. You're, like, you're looking at me aghast like, Pastor, are you saying what I think you're saying? I'm just saying, God's the one who came up with the email, the internet, the telephone, the television. He came up with that, and people have perverted that stuff. I'm just saying, when the time comes, and your mom and dad have given you the thumbs up, yes, it's okay for you to drop your hanky, yes, it's okay for you to initiate to get a hold of a girl, or to initiate get a hold of her dad, or whatever, yes, it's okay. It might be a number of different ways you do it. The internet could be involved in appropriate and right way, in a thoughtful way, in a careful way, not in a secret way, not in a dangerous way. You understand that? I believe that. You, some of you are still thinking about that, but, you know, anyway. But, but stay under authority until you, your folks are saying, yes, I think now's the time. But your folks might say, hey, why don't you do this first? Why don't you go to Costa Rica? Why don't you get a bachelor's degree? Why don't you get a clue about life first? You know, why don't you experience this or do that? And, and you might say, yeah, Mom, Dad, I'll, I'll do that. These are things I'll, experiences I'm going to get under my belt, and I'm going to do that while I'm single. And then I bring that into my marriage, and I offer that in my marriage, and we're a better team to serve the Lord that way. Now, the final thing is this, and it is really important. Never sacrifice your purity. Take your Bible and look at 1 Corinthians 6. Man, you are never going to trust me to stop on time again as long as I live. But 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20 and this is one of many passages that talk about, that give the strictest warnings about absolute moral integrity and absolute moral purity. This is so important. And let me read this very carefully. So the Bible over and over warns us not to get involved in marriage things before we're married. Over and over it says, don't do marriage things before you're married. It's a big warning. One of the strongest warnings in the Bible here in 1 Corinthians 6, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, God is the avenger of all such. It's like, oh. This is serious. Sex is for marriage. Outside of marriage, you bring difficulty upon yourself. Whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. You can see it all around you if you look. 
Sexual things are only for marriage. And this is, again, one example of this is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 18 through 20. I'm in 2 Corinthians wondering why that doesn't work. All right, let me get to the right book here. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You were bought with a price, bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. And concerning the things of which you wrote me, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. There are, there, we, in our family, this is kind of a direct way of putting it, but we have eight kids that are approaching one that's married and so we're in this, and we're humbly on our face, on our knees, asking God for help in this. But one of the things that we say to the kids all the time is, no, 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 don't touch her, don't touch him, no, no, no. It's not like they want to do that all the time, but you see what I'm saying, is we're telling them no about any involvement in marriage stuff before they're married. No! And we're watching over them, and we're protecting them, we're helping them, and we're caring for them. It's like, please, no, that's not the... No, because we want to say the big yes someday. It's like, no, Tiger, go get them. You know, that's the way it ought to be. I had this personal experience with my firstborn son, and it seemed like, like to me, and he's, I'm like, no, Kyle, no, Kyle, no. And he's like agreeing with me. Yeah, I agree, Dad, but you're like, you don't look like you agree. You look like you're really interested in doing something that's marriage when you're not married. My apologies, Kyle, to you when you listen to this. But, and, so, as we, and, so, and so all the time I'm like having this no speech to him. Careful now. Don't. No, bro. You know, careful. Yeah. I remember one night after he got married, he said to me, Dad, uh, you know, you never have explained things to me. And there's things that I'm really not sure I know about. I'm pretending I know these things about marriage, intimacy, and stuff. And so I said, don't worry. I'll, I'll cover that with you someday. Thinking, you know, I'm going to have to kind of get up to speed on it myself and then, you know, get with him and tell him what he needs to know. And, and so... Uh, yeah. Anyway, so I remember telling him, I said, well, you know, a few weeks before you're married, we'll have a special meeting, and I'll tell you everything I know. It won't take that long, but I'll tell you everything I know. It'll be like, you've heard the no speech, this will be the yes speech. This will be the go get them tiger speech, you know. I remember that night. It's a wonderful night. We were living in Flint at the time. He was selling insurance in Muskegon. We met in Grand Rapids at a, at a barbecue place. It was a wonderful, it's a wonderful night for a dad and a son. I just found this lovely Christian girl, and I, and I finally now he gets to enjoy all the things that marriage means. And, and so we talked to him about those things as best I could to help him be prepared for that part of his marriage. And it was a delightful time to talk to a father and a son. And we prayed together. Then I drove home, shocked at how fast we got to the yes speech. And some of you guys, you're sitting here, you're thinking, all I hear is no, no, no. The pastor says no, mom and dad say no, everybody says no, no. When's the yes going to come? Again, when it does come, if you're obedient, no, when the yes comes, it'll be delightful. I heard a guy say it like this one time. Satan will do everything he can to get you in bed together before you're married, and he will do everything he can to keep you out of bed after you're married. And they kind of connected. The scriptures talk about defrauding, stirring up desires that can't be righteously fulfilled. And the scriptures talk a great deal of that. Let me just kind of bring this to a conclusion. What is God's way? According to God's way, like Adam, what did he do to get a wife? He went to sleep? I said this to junior hires 
one time and they did not get it. I remember said it with this great flourish and I thought this is going to be really profound and they're all going to repent and check off answers, scurry down to the altar, sign their homes over to me, you know, throw me up and down, you know. I go, so Adam, what did he do to get a wife? He went to sleep. <laughs> Isaac, what did he do to get a wife? He went out and meditated in the field at night and he let his dad's old friend, probably Eliezer, take care of the business for him. Imagine that. He went and got his wife from right back. And what did Jacob do to get a wife? He goes to a long time where his mother told him, Mary's cousin. <laughs> what it says in the Bible there. I told the kids, I told these junior high kids this, you know, and so I said, so you see what you need to do? And I was way too abstract for junior high kids. I go, you need to just go to sleep. And I never forget the look on their face. They all kind of went, like, what? What? It's like no 14-year-old kid is going to sleep at this point, right? It's like, you've got to be kidding me. So I have to describe what that means. It means that you to go to sleep in that sense is to seek God with all your heart. And don't worry about getting a whole bunch of romances going. Have friends. This is why our youth group, I think, can be a wonderful thing as young people go to youth group and they're not like focusing on any one individual person is the best way to do it. They're all just, everybody's there and they get to see how they behave. <laughs> get to see, you get to see what they do and the stuff. And if they're a real Christian and if they act like a real Christian, they get to, they get to see that. Sometimes people go away, you know, young people go away and they do stuff that they probably shouldn't do. You know, I mean, that happens, right? Adults do that sometimes, but we focus on young people. And then we think it's a great tragedy. We go, oh my goodness, they did stuff they shouldn't do. It's like, what were you thinking? Their kids are going to sometimes do stuff they shouldn't do. Now, what's, <laughs> what's the point of all that? At this point, you know, we don't pull our hair out or, you know, we don't, we, don't, we don't make the kids walk on live coals or anything. We don't cancel all youth activities from now on forever. What do we do? We say, okay, we know what to preach about now. <laughs> okay, we saw that. We know we have some things to work on with Junior over here who's doing crazy stuff. And we love Junior. I mean, we were Junior once, right? <laughs> Am I right? You remember that? Remember when you did stupid things? The pastor didn't hang you over it? <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. We watch these things. Here's what I think the best way to say it, and that is this. I really believe that the Bible teaches that God reserves His very, very, very best for those who will trust Him with the choice and do things the way that God says. And though I've left a lot of things unsaid, what would happen if a young person, based on the Bible, would say, all right, I want to run a maximum romance, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to concentrate on ministry until I'm mature enough to marry and I'll know I'm old enough to marry and when my parents agree that it's time and they agree about the person. And in between now and then, I want to operate with absolute moral purity. My oldest son, again, said to me one time, Dad, this is a weird idea. I don't get it. I don't know how it's going to work. Remember, he was a nice kid about it, but he said, Dad, how's this going to work? And he, and he had this singer. He said, you and Mom didn't do it this way. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. We didn't really do it this way. That's one of the reasons why we want you to do it this way. He said, well, how's it going to work? We were up in Ludington at the time. And we were walking along the beach. And I said, sounds like we go to the beach all the time, doesn't it? Anyway, we were walking along the beach. And there's this place you go walk out way, way out to this lighthouse. You ever been up there? You can, it's like a half-mile walk out this like, thing to the lighthouse. lighthouse. I said, I don't know what it'll look like. It's hard for me to figure that out. I can't, you know, tell the future. But I just believe 
Like the Bible says, if we walk in the light, she is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, the blood of Jesus cleanses us, we stay pure and cleansed when we walk in the light, we keep the lights on, we do everything out in the open. I don't know, maybe you meet a girl someday and your mom and I and you and her will go out to dinner, like we could go here and we could have dinner together, we could all talk, get to know each other, and maybe your mom and I would sit here on this bench and you would walk out to the lighthouse and it was like we would see you the whole time, but at the same time you'd be alone. You'd have an opportunity to talk and get to know each other. But you also have that sense of accountability that we're kind of watching. We're here for you. And folks, I just believe this with all my heart. I would not let kids go out alone without any chaperone because this doesn't make sense. Even good Christian kids who really do seriously love the Lord are going to be tempted to do things they shouldn't do because God intended for somebody to be there to, to kind of watch over that. And there might be occasions when they've been very, very trustworthy and you have a short period of time. You say, well, you go ahead and go there alone and come back. I understand that. And not being rigid or, or whatever. But I just think that kids need a lot more walking in the light than they have. So let's help them. And, <laughs> and let's love them. And let's draw them into a hard agreement on these things. So I hope I've been helpful to you tonight. I want to close our meeting in prayer. Heavenly Father, I, I just tell you, thank you, Lord. Thank you that the folk here are, are so willing to listen with their hearts. And I love our sons, my own sons and daughters, and Lois's and mine. And the young people of this church, they're, they're some of the most beautiful young people I have ever seen. And I know their parents, many of them, are devoted followers of you, Lord Jesus. And so... I would even ask you right now, as one of the pastors of the church, in an agreement together, we pray for the young people, the young men, the young women of this church, and the ones that are here, the sound of my voice tonight, the ones that will hear this recording. I pray, Lord, that you would stir up in their own hearts a desire to say, yes, I want to follow your ways, God. I want to do things your way. I want to serve the Lord without distraction while I'm single. I want to be under my parents' blessing and have their blessing. And I want to arrive at the marriage altar with absolute moral purity. I pray that young people that even may have failed in the past would decide tonight as a new beginning that that's what they're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.